0: Hello, Northbrook. If you'd like to locate Galatians 6 in your Bibles, I will be reading aloud verses 1 to 18, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read. This is going to be our uh, last Sunday in this series in Galatians. As we finish out this letter from Paul, it's kind of hard to believe that we have been apart from each other long enough to have finished this out and in some ways I regret that we haven't been able to have our normal uh, time to be able to uh, talk about questions that you have from the passage but if you have questions you're free to email me and um, ask the questions. My email again is john at northbrookbc.org and you're always welcome on any of the sermons that you see on these videos to write and ask if you have a question. But next week, we'll be starting a new series. It'll be kind of a very different series from what we're used to and what I normally do. And in next week's email, I will give a little bit of heads up on what's going to be going on with that. Let's read together Galatians 6, 1 to 18. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may be persecuted for, they may not be persecuted for the Christ, cross of Christ. and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Have you ever thought about or noticed how often we tend to ask the question, why? Probably not. But my guess is that the question passes through our mind and lips far more often than we realize. We drive in traffic and wonder why the idiot in front of us is going so slow or cutting in and out of traffic or riding our tail when they could just go around us. I I do that a lot. We go to work and wonder why people leave the coffee pot turned on when it's empty. Or why that co-worker never gets their work done. And why doesn't the boss ever deal with them? More recently, and probably the most important question we should be asking today in regard to why, is why did so many people hoard toilet paper for a respiratory problem? And I guess some questions will never be answered. But we do go on asking why and wondering. This one-word question, when applied to people and God, is our attempt to probe beneath the surface of what happened to a question of the heart. It wants to go beyond the the behaviors and try to figure out the motives behind the choices, because What is happening or what we've seen happen goes against what we think was best or right. And at least to us, there doesn't seem to be any logical or good reason for the choice that the other person has made. This idea of motives, the reasons behind the choices and the actions that we make and do, is what Paul is driving at as he ends this letter. I don't know about you, but I find it really interesting how Paul ends this letter. Unlike so many of his other letters, he forgoes the normal personal comments and greetings. There are no greet so-and-sos or thanks for your support type goodbyes. Actually, in this letter, he just wraps it up with, From now on, let no one cause me trouble and then curtly ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's almost like in this last section of the letter that he's so ticked off, he just cuts loose, and then when he's done, he throws the quill down on his desk. But in fact, that would be the furthest furthest thing from what is uh, actually happening here. While it's Possibly easy to see these last few verses, verses 11 to 18, as a a wrap-up or a venting of frustrations for Paul. I believe it really is simply a continuation of his thoughts and logic from chapter 5, where he makes his statement regarding love. His point has been, from the end of chapter 5 or the middle of chapter 5, on through chapter 6, that people of love live in a very different way because of the Spirit's work and the massive change taking place inside of them. These believers, those led by the Spirit, who are keeping in step with the Spirit, are people who are new creations, as he says in verse 15 of chapter 6, what we've just read here. The works of the flesh, he tells us, circumcision, mean nothing before God, or in relation to our personal righteousness, whether that righteousness is our practical righteousness, how we live on a day-to-day basis, or spiritually the the righteousness that we have before God in Christ. What we do, the works of the flesh, if you remember, are, are what we are capable of on our own, and are actually opposed to God, and are destructive to ourselves and those around us. If you remember that list of the works of the flesh, they are really our efforts to satisfy our desires with little or no regard to what is best for those around us. It's what I want and what I want now. And I'm going to get it regardless of what it does to me or what it does to others. In contrast to this, Paul has presented to us another way of life. He has presented to us people who I have called people of love, people who are new creations, who live in a very different way. These people have choices that are driven by what is best for others, looking for ways to serve others in love, loving their neighbors as themselves, which is directly connected to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is the fulfilling of Jesus' statement that if you love him, and by the way, he's God, if you love him, you will keep his commands. And that leads to his later command that if you love one another, even as I have loved you, you are living out the distinguishing mark of his followers all people will know they will be able to identify that you are my followers if you have love for one another people of love are driven by what is best for others because their motivations are developed within hearts of flesh where the holy spirit is doing his work of transformation and that is what it means to be a new creation Every decision has a motive that is saturated with desires for, of what God has, saturated with the desires of God himself, and the good of others. And that's a high standard. And somebody might say, well, it's very idealistic to think that every decision I make is saturated with these things. But the reality is, it is what it means to be Christ-like. And that's the point of Galatians 6, 11 to 18. Just as it was in the first 10 verses of Galatians, Paul is showing us what a spirit-led life looks like. He's showing us through illustrations what it means to be Christ-like. And here in verses 11 to 18, Paul, once again, points to the behavior of the Judaizers and how they behave within the community of the people of love. Where he's given us positive illustrations before, now he's going to point to the Judaizers and say, here's a negative illustration. What it means to be Christ-like is not how the Judaizers behave and he wants the galatian believers to understand how burdened he is for them and how passionate about these issues he is that circumcision is not a small issue it's a big issue not he's not opposed to circumcision for circumcision's sake if it's a health thing or whatever but he's he's passionate and he's passionately opposed to the idea that circumcision somehow earns you merit before God, that somehow God likes you better or accepts you better on the basis that you are circumcised. And so now, pointing to their behavior, he begins in verse 12 to expose their selfish and ungodly motives. What's behind the behavior of the Judaizers? He does this in two ways. First, he... He tells us their motives, and that then leads to the behaviors that they have. And this first motive that he points out is that they want to make a good showing, he says, by forcing these Galatian Christians to be circumcised. Notice a couple of important words in this sentence. Forcing and a good showing. These Judaizers are not pointing their spiritual siblings to the finished work of Jesus and letting the Holy Spirit work in those people's lives. They don't come in and preach grace. They don't come in and preach uh, that Christ has finished the work of redemption by his death, burial, and resurrection. They do not look at it and say, we will teach truth and then let the Holy Spirit take that truth and use it in people's lives no they're manipulative they force paul says these people they guilt them and they compel them to be circumcised Can you imagine what it would have been like to be under their leadership to 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 have this word that paul uses to force them why what is their motive paul says their motive is a good showing, which uh, we might say this way today, to look good in the eyes of others. Paul doesn't go into detail here. The, the, The Galatian brothers and sisters understand what he's saying, but somehow and in some way their actions betray that these people mean nothing more to them than tools to impress others, The Judaizers are using these Christians to build themselves up in the eyes of other people. And what an awful, honestly ungodly motive for someone who's supposed to be a teacher of Christ. I mean, have you ever had someone that that befriended you And seem to be on your side, only to find out later that the relationship was just a way to use you for their own personal advantage? That makes us angry. It's, It's what I said, awful and ungodly. But that's what these Judaizers were doing. And not just in relation to everyday things, but in relation to these people's souls. They were using these people spiritually and twisting them and twisting the truth to advance themselves. Their agenda has absolutely nothing to do with the exaltation of God and His grace. It has nothing to do with what God accomplished through His death and resurrection, and it has nothing to do with the spiritual growth of others. It's all about their self-exaltation. And then Paul goes on to reveal the Judaizers' second motivation. Their second motivation is to avoid persecution from other people, whoever they are, but those other people diminish and ultimately reject the cross work of Jesus. Wow. That's who they want to be accepted by. They want to be accepted by people who ultimately oppose God's work of redemption in Jesus. They proclaim acceptance with God through circumcision, but they simply want to be approved and welcomed by people who are children of the devil. That's a strong statement. I, I realize that. But when you are opposed to, to the cross work of Jesus as the way of redemption and a way of acceptance with Jesus, with God, then you are aligning yourself with the devil because that's his agenda. And when you add works to any of any kind to the gracious redemptive work of God found in Jesus, you are opposed to God and you are aligned with the devil. That's scary stuff. But that's what motivates them. There is evidence in Paul's eyes for their motivation. He goes on to point out their hypocrisy. And it's this, if if keeping the law and circumcision for acceptance was got, with God was really so important to the Judaizers, wouldn't it make sense that their behavior would match their proclaimed beliefs. But there's a disconnect with how they live. These false teachers who insist that others burden themselves with the law and endure the pain of circumcision, don't keep the law themselves, Paul says. Now, he doesn't go into details about how they don't keep the law. He, He may simply mean that because it's impossible to keep the law, it's just generally true that they don't keep the law. Or it may be that they're out saying, don't do these things while they themselves turn around and do them. But for Paul, whatever is happening here in relation to not keeping the law, for Paul, this is clear evidence that their motives are not driven by love for God and others. It's not what is best for those they teach, but it is what is best for these teachers of what is false, and it is what is best for their own reputation, what they can boast about. And you know what they're boasting about? Literally, what they're boasting about is how many foreskins they collected in the past week. They're boasting in the circumcision of these people. On the other hand, what do people of love boast about? Well, it's not going to be how many people they circumcised. What people of love boast about is Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. They boast about his blood that was shed to atone and cover the sin I've committed. People of love boast about Jesus' death and how it paid the penalty I could never pay. People of love boast about that Jesus was abandoned by his Father as he died so that I would never experience separation from the Father that is now his Father and our Father. People of love boast about. They find their confidence in that Jesus endured the humiliation of the cross so that God the Father would one day celebrate over me. People of love find their identity, their reputation, their confidence, their boasting, and realize that All that they have of value. They're only worthwhile reputation. And the best acceptance by anyone in this universe is found in Jesus. That's what people of love boast in. I love him. And he's everything to me. That's what Paul says here. In verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Everything, Paul says, in another place that was of value to me is nothing. Jesus is my everything. You know, as I thought about this, I thought about today's Christian circles. You know, we, don't, we don't brag about circumcision. Uh, we don't have circumcision services. We don't have altar calls to come and be circumcised. At least no one that I know does. But we, we do boast about things like that. So I thought about it. I thought about how easy it is to humble brag about how many attend our church and then identify that as a sign of God's blessing, implying that those smaller churches are not accepted by God in quite the same way we are. That's why pastors, you know what? We you know a question a lot of pastors ask when they first meet each other how many people do you have in your church? Yeah. And and then, you know, you, you say, oh, 100, 120. Oh. Well, brother, you just keep going. Or we hear about the seminars on how to grow our churches. And if you do these things, you'll be like so and so who has. 5,000 people. Now you say, you know, I think you're a little bit got a chip on your shoulder because you're in a small church. No, I don't. Our small church isn't any more godly than a big church. And there are big churches that are wonderful and I'm thankful for them. But the reality is that we tend to brag about our circumcisions, how many people are coming. And then we exalt the people that have more people in our churches than their churches. You know, there's another thing that we pastors do. We like to feel accepted by other pastors. And so another question that comes up with pastors, and it's important, is where you went to school because that tells us all about you, where you went to school, or who your favorite author or preacher is, and whether you hold the right position on the end times. And so we begin to find our confidence in what school we went to. And we begin to find our confidence that so-and-so is our favorite author and they said such-and-such. And that, therefore, gives validation. You know, there's a lot of people that when the pastor says so and so said this, oh, well that that makes it, you know, we accept that. You know, right now in the current events surrounding us, your loyalty to God is being judged in some quarters on whether your congregation has started gathering yet or if it's still doing what we're doing online. You know, it's it's a mess where we are as Christians, but it's not new. It was happening a very long time ago with circumcision. And you know, it's not just pastors that have these problems. Realize that? It's everyday people in the church who feel like they're part of something successful because their church has so many numbers of people. They feel like they're accepted and they have something to boast about because their pastor is pastor so-and-so. Or their building is so nice. Or They feel like what they believe is valuable because they read it in so-and-so's book. I mean, I could go on and on into skirt lengths and music and all kinds of things where we find our confidence and we find our boasting. And, and, you know, I, I struggle with this all the time. But the problem in all of these things is our motives. You know, none of this matters to us. If we really are people of love, if we are people who are led by the Spirit to love God and love others doing what is best for them. So as I thought about this, it seems to me that it's important for us to probe probe ourselves a bit from time to time and ask ourselves that little one-word question. Why? Why? If we really are one-word people, and that that word is love, and so therefore people of love, then possibly it's a good thing to be people of one question. Uh, I'm not going to say you shouldn't ask other questions. But we should be people of that one question. Why? For example, why is the size of our congregation important to us? Here's another one. Why... Am I irritated by that person's behavior? Or, why would I avoid certain people who are my brothers and sisters in Jesus? Why? And maybe the questions are different for you. But these are questions for me. And maybe those questions you need to ask yourself, too. And maybe there's other questions that you have or other areas that you need to ask why. But the bottom line is that we need to be people who, as Paul has said in other places, and Peter has said, we need to be people who, who examine ourselves, And that that examination that we need to be doing is largely rooted in that question of why. Why did I say that in that way? And we need to determine through that question if change needs to take place in each of us inside each of us. You know, we we spend a lot of time on behavior, what has been termed behavioral management, trying to change the outside and how we act. But really, if, if, if behavior is an issue, then we need to get inside and try to figure out what the motives are behind the behavior coming out of us. I think that if we're honest in the asking and answering of that one-word question, why, it will help us to understand how much we need the Spirit's work in us to become one-word people, people of love. As Paul writes at the end of his letter, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this question why is something that we are quick to ask of others and slow to ask of ourselves. And that, in and of itself, reveals that we see ourselves as better than others. We're that Pharisee with that publican. That person may not even be an idiot who's driving in the traffic. I may be the idiot for being frustrated with him, because I don't know why he's driving the way he is he might be tailgating me and not going around me because he can't get around me. But he may be on his way to an emergency. And I'm blocking him by not getting out of his way. Father, it's so easy for us to not even look at why we do what we do. And just point the finger at others, and in those moments, we're not people of love. And we acknowledge that. I pray that you would, again, as as we've seen so much in the book of Galatians, help us to desire the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As Paul says, help us to keep in step with the Spirit. God, give us that desire. I thank you that you have promised to make us into the image of your Son. You say it's why you redeemed us in the first place. Not really so we could know you, but that we could experience your grace and love and power in us as you transform us into the image of Jesus. May we want that more than anything else. I ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Walk in grace.